Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jonah. I'm an elder here and also one of the, one of the pastors. So if you were not here last week, um, we started a, a, a brief series, a three-part series in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 and the encounter that the Apostle Paul has with the people of Athens. So verses 16 through 34 of Acts 17. And so uh, during this three-week period, I, I'm working my way through this passage little by little. We're looking at different sections each week. So we come to section two today. And so last week, we talked about how the gospel confronts our idols, how the gospel speaks into our idolatry and corrects that idolatry. This week, one of the themes I really want to take some time to look at is this idea of the altar to the unknown God, and that's something we're going to see come up in the text as we read it, but the altar to the unknown God. And what I want to look at this morning is how we sometimes treat Jesus like that altar to the unknown God. We treat Jesus like a backup plan, like a plan B, in case things don't work out in life, we keep Jesus as that extra insurance policy, you could say. Now, it is wise in life to have a backup plan, isn't it? Uh, To plan for the what-ifs, right? What if I suddenly lose my job? What if I get sick? What if my car needs a major repair? What if the economy tanks? That's why we sometimes keep a little extra food on hand, maybe a supply of extra water, extra firewood, these kinds of things. It's also why we keep insurance policies. Most of us have house insurance and and life insurance and health insurance and auto insurance for those what-ifs. Now, as I was thinking about this idea of insurance this week, I came across an an article. Apparently, there's a firm in London that sells insurance policies for for alien abduction. And they've actually sold 30,000-plus insurance policies for alien abductions. All right, I guess it's, it's good to be prepared for the what-ifs in life, to insure just about anything. And in fact, you can insure just about anything these days. So, for example, Gene Simmons, the legendary bassist for the 70s rock group KISS, allegedly insured his tongue for $1 million. His tongue. Supermodel Heidi Klum insured her legs for $2.2 million dollars, just in case, right? And not to be outdone, Kim Kardashian insured her rear end for $21 million. Always be prepared, right? Now, what's my point? Where where are we going here with this? Now, a lot of us treat God like an insurance policy for our eternal souls, Right, we keep Jesus around j- just in case. And so now as we return to the book of Acts, chapter 17, as we go back to the story of Paul and his, his conversation with the people of, of Athens in the first century, what we're going to see is that the people of Athens had a similar insurance policy. It was called the altar to the unknown God. 
So you could go and pray to this unknown God. You could make a sacrifice to this God just in case your normal gods didn't work out. Right, just in case Zeus didn't let you into the Elysium fields, just in case Athena forgot to show you her, her favor, maybe, just maybe, this nameless, unknown God would appreciate the fact that you remembered him once or twice in your life and offered a sacrifice, said a couple of prayers, and he might show you his favor. He might take pity on you. It doesn't hurt to keep an extra God in our back pocket just in case. Can you relate to this a little bit? Think about this. Can you relate? Why are we here today? I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is Jesus just an insurance policy? Is he a backup plan in case our own self-reliance doesn't work out? In case we're going through hard times and we need a little extra help? In case we need to feel better about ourselves, our religious life? I want us to really ponder that question this morning. Do we hunger and thirst for God? Or is church just a a backup plan? Are we here because our spouse keeps hounding us to get some religion? Are we here because our parents make us go to church? Because we grew up going to church and we still carry a little bit of guilt. What would grandma say if she found out I wasn't doing some religious stuff with my life. We're here maybe because it's good for the kids or or that sort of thing. I better drag my carcass along on this spiritual journey just in case the whole thing turns out to be true. I better get in line for my, my ticket to heaven. Is that how we approach Jesus Christ? Now, maybe that's where you're at today. And if that's where you're at, I just want you to know that you're, you're not alone. I think a lot of us have been in that place, viewing Jesus as a backup plan. So as we go to Acts chapter 17 today, we're going to turn there now and read verses 22 uh, through 28. I just want to be thinking about this. Jesus is so much more than just a mere backup plan. So Acts chapter 17 Verses 22 through 28. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim To you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather this morning and to, to be in your word. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit work in us this morning. We ask that you would make our hearts soft to you, make our spirits pliable, make our minds open to receive from you this morning. Would you guide us now in our study? In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, last week we followed the Apostle Paul into the city of Athens where he became provoked in his spirit. If you recall that verse, verse 16, he was provoked in his spirit by the idolatry of the people. And so he reasoned in the synagogues with the the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and he reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be there, including a number of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And so, because of his, his proclamation of the gospel, Paul is now invited, if not maybe dragged to the Areopagus, the hill of, of Ares, where he's now asked to present more on this, this God. Who is this Jesus that you're proclaiming? So Paul is surrounded now by the elites of Athens. So the Areopagus, this is where the the temples would have been located. This is the center of religious life. And so he's surrounded by these cultural elites, the politicians, the theologians, the philosophers, the movers and shakers of society, right? And he's being asked now to present more on this Jesus character. And so Paul answers them. To those who worship the unknown, Paul shows them a knowable God, So last week we saw how the gospel confronts our idols, how the gospel frustrates the wisdom of the world and and, and shows us the wisdom of God. And this week I have two more points to add. The gospel answers our deepest longings. And secondly, the gospel shows us the fullness of God's plan. So that's where we're going to spend our time today. So first off, look at verses 22 and 23. Verses 22 and 23, the gospel speaks into our most fundamental needs and desires and offers us meaning and eternity. So in his witness to the truth of the gospel, Paul begins by finding common ground with the Athenian people. And his, honestly, his, his response here is brilliant. He finds a connection point with the society, this altar to an unknown God. He disarms the people by pointing to their own altars, their own poets, their own philosophers, their own belief system. And he recognizes that we all have a fundamental desire to connect to God. Now, if I could paraphrase what Paul is saying to the Athenians, it would look like this. I know you guys are looking for answers to life's ultimate questions. I sympathize with that. I know you take religious belief seriously and you want to get it right. And you know what? I I have an answer. I have an answer that might help you. You worship an unknown God, I can show you who that God is. He's a God who can be known, a God who wants to be known. He's the true and living God. He's more than just a backup plan. He's the living water. He's the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and he is inviting you to receive his free gift of salvation and to enjoy him forever. What you worship is unknown. I want to proclaim to you. See, Paul wants the Athenians to understand that they are right to long for God. 
That's normal. We, we all are looking for something. We have what, what Blaise Pascal describes as a God-shaped vacuum or God-shaped hole in our hearts, a desire for the eternal. But in longing for a connection to the divine, we ought not settle for diminutive, inadequate gods of our own imagination. That's, that's where Paul's going here. The point here is to, to, to not settle for the unknown God when you can have the God who created you and who loves you and has a plan for your life. There's so much more available to you if you would simply reach out and take it. Imagine a scenario for a moment. Imagine you have the opportunity to dine at the finest restaurant in the world, to enjoy the creative culinary achievement of the top chef in the entire world. So in this restaurant, there's absolutely no bad item on the menu. Every choice is perfectly thought out, perfectly prepared. Now, I used to live just down the street from a restaurant such as this, Chez Paul Bocuse, okay? Three Michelin stars, the top restaurant in France. Paul Bocuse was a national icon, okay? He was treated like a god to the French people. And when he died a few years ago, the entire country, I'm not joking, went into a state of mourning. Flags at half mass, that kind of thing. They take this stuff really, really seriously. This was the top restaurant. Now imagine you are dining in a restaurant like this, and the waiter arrives to take your order. But instead of opening the menu and allowing yourself to be swept away into a new dimension of culinary enjoyment, you turn to the waiter and you ask simply for a hamburger and fries made in the style of, of White Castle, okay? <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Now, I'm not trying to be too hard here on, on hamburgers. They are delicious, all right? I eat them. We all enjoy them, and it's possible that White Castle hamburgers are very good as well. I, I don't know. I've never had one, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. If you've been given the opportunity to eat at Paul Bacuse's restaurant and order anything that his brilliant mind has dreamed up, but instead you order a hamburger of your own design, you have missed out. You have missed out on what could have been a life-altering experience, Okay. What's my point? Where am I going with this? In the same way, the Athenian people are being offered the real deal, okay? They're being presented with the very best, with the only God who will satisfy their deepest longings, the only God who will truly fill the void in their hearts. Yet they've settled for the silly, capricious gods of, of, of their culture, Right? These gods modeled after the very worst of human qualities. And we often settle for small, paltry, trivial gods, for idols. We do the same thing. We hunger for the divine, yet rather than feasting on the bread of life, rather than drinking deeply of the living water, we settle for crumbs. This is Paul's concern in verses 22 and 23. I see that you are hungry, let me lead you to the real feast. Let me show you the true God. Jesus Christ satisfies our deepest longings. Second point. 
The second thing I want you to notice in Paul's discourse is that the good news of salvation by the death and the resurrection of Jesus fits into a divinely ordained plan. Okay, the gospel shows us the fullness of God's plan. Paul doesn't just share the gospel. Okay, he gives us the full context in which the gospel is situated. In other words, he doesn't just share the, 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 the good news of the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He gives greater context. Okay, he helps us situate this in the fuller context of history. He gives us the problem so that we can better grasp the solution. He shows us the beginning of the story so that the end of the story makes a little bit more sense. See, the order of things here is creation, fall, redemption, glorification, or consummation. That's the whole story. That's the big picture. And Paul's painting that picture for the Greeks. He's correcting some bad theology that the Greek people have held. Because unlike the Greek gods who just kind of show up along the course of human history or pass in and out of human activity, the God of the Bible is intimately involved in every detail of human history. And that is what the Apostle Paul wants the people of Athens to understand. So Paul's focus in verses 24 through 28 is on God as the creator of mankind and as the sovereign overseer of all human activity. See, the Greek gods had a very turbulent relationship with human beings, and it was often marked by jealousy, by anger, sometimes by affection, sometimes by complete dismissal. But whatever it was, it was not always a good, good relationship. Okay, you can think of examples from Greek mythology where the gods show up. The best thing usually to do with these gods is to try to fly under the radar and stay out of their way. Zeus could show up and, and, and sleep with your wife or that sort of thing. I mean, that stuff happened in Greek mythology. Hera would get jealous of you and strike you dead. Even Athena, the patroness of Athens, had, had pretty bad relationships with a lot of humans. You know the story of, of Arachne, this woman who, who was turned into a spider by Athena, or Medusa, who was turned into a monster because of uh, Athena's jealousy of, of her beauty, or, or these kinds of things. That was how the Greek gods dealt with human beings. It was best to just stay out of their way, for the most part. Now, Paul is correcting this view by showing the Athenians that God is not only the creator of mankind, but that he gives particular attention to human beings in his salvation plan. God created human beings that we might know him and glorify him. As we see in, in Psalm 8, God made mankind a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and with honor and gave him dominion over the earth, the birds of the sky and the creeping things that creep on the ground, the fish of the sea. Right? God set mankind apart to garden his creation. Man has a special place in history. Now this concept, as delineated by verses 24 through 28, should be fairly straightforward. Okay? God created all nations out of our first parents, as we, as we read. Right? Out of one man, he made every nation of men. And he invites those people into a relationship and into worship. That should be pretty straightforward. We got that, right? Now, unfortunately, the idea that God is creator, the idea of 
our original parents, Adam and Eve, these, these concepts um, have been under attack within the church in recent years. And so I think it's appropriate here to make some ancillary remarks on this topic because I think we need to really understand what's going on here. See, my concern is this. It can be very tempting for contemporary Christian leaders to either ignore the Genesis account of creation or to treat it as a myth. And this stuff has come up a lot in, in current podcasts. Um, Christianity Today has had articles on this. The Christian Research Journal, uh, William Lane Craig out of Biola University wrote a, a book on this recently. Um, BioLogos. There are a number of organizations that are exploring these questions. Can we really believe in a creator? Can we really believe in an Adam and Eve and an original sin and these kinds of things? But what I want to do here is show you why this is important theologically to what Paul is getting at with the gospel, okay? As many Christians espouse that the sheer strength of neo-Darwinian philosophical assumptions in our world today concerning creation and the origin of man make belief in the biblical account untenable. Now, I've noticed a growing tendency, like I said, within the church, and I mean the evangelical church as a whole, for leaders to kind of gloss over the subject. And one of the reasons for this is that if you talk about the subject, you, you risk having to take a position on it, for one. Furthermore, you risk alienating members of your congregation who may not share the same views. So the result of this is let's just focus on Jesus and not worry about all of the creation stuff and all the Adam and Eve stuff. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not here to debate the age of the earth or whether the Hebrew word yom refers to a day or an age or that sort of thing. I'm not particularly worried about microevolution or mutations or these kinds of things or when various creatures appeared on the earth. Those are conversations we can have at another time. I'm open to wrestling with those kinds of questions in light of theological, philosophical, and scientific considerations in that order, okay? But I do think it's important for the church to speak into these issues, okay? The question of the creation of our first parents shows up in Acts 17, and so we need to deal with it. And the biblical view of human origins, I think, is very important for four reasons, First of all, if we deny the creation and the fall of a literal Adam and Eve, then we deny what God himself has revealed in Scripture. We just need to be very careful with this. Okay, the Holy Spirit did not miscommunicate Acts chapter 17. Paul believed that God created Adam and Eve because God himself believes that he created Adam and Eve. Secondly, if we're careless with the Genesis account of our first parents who are image bearers of God and who have sinned against God, then we end up having a very difficult time explaining original sin. And if there's no original sinners, then there's no original sin. And we risk reducing the human condition to a sort of mere psychological or emotional brokenness that just needs a little healing or Jesus therapy to fix it, okay? So that we can be a better version of ourselves. The Bible does not explain the human condition as emotional brokenness, but as radical corruption and separation from God because of sin. If we don't have a fall into sin, 
then we don't really have a sin condition and then we don't really need a savior. I want you to understand there are logical connections between these doctrines, okay? So the next thing, third thing, Paul's discourse in Acts 17 tells us a lot about the nature of God. You can deduce a lot of attributes of God from this this conversation that he's having with the Athenians. God is self-existing. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is sovereign. God is good. God is loving. God is purposeful in his activity and so forth. The God of the Bible is a very big God who cares deeply for very small human beings. Fourth thing, if we're going to be embarrassed by our primitive beliefs about creation and original sin, then why not take that to its logical conclusion and just get rid of miracles and divine revelation and the resurrection of the dead and everything else along with it? Okay, again, there are entailments between these doctrines. So again, I'm, I'm comfortable debating the details of the Genesis account. I'm comfortable discussing timelines and possible formulations of how these things fit into history. I'm not comfortable dismissing the existence of our first parents and their theological significance to the rest of Scripture. Biblical doctrine matters. Doctrines are inextricably connected to other doctrines. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we're comfortable with, which ones we like, which ones we think are out of touch with reality. Okay? Look at it this way. Since I'm working with food analogies today, consider another metaphor. Suppose we want to bake a proper loaf of fresh bread. Okay? However... We want this bread without the right ingredients and without the right processes. That's a problem. Because if you leave out any essential ingredient and you fail to follow the process of letting the bread rise and bake properly, you're not going to get the right result. We, we know that. And in the same way, we can't just pull out parts of Scripture we don't like. Scripture interprets Scripture. Doctrine explains doctrine. Look at it another way. You remember those old series circuit Christmas lights, right? Where if you take out one bulb, or if one bulb burns out, the rest of the chain, the rest of the lights fail to work correctly. It's the same thing with the flow of Scripture. Okay, if we start pulling out the parts of the Bible we think are stupid or primitive, the message loses its meaning and it loses its power. Okay, if you want salvation you need creation and fall along with it. That's just how it works. The incarnation of Jesus as the second Adam, as we read about in Romans, only makes sense when situated in light of God's creation of the first man, the first Adam. So we're talking here again about logical entailments between concepts. Because if your antecedent is a secular proposition and your consequent is a secular proposition, then why on earth would your, your conclusion be a theological or spiritual conclusion? This offends me as a philosopher and it saddens me as a pastor when we go that route. We can't adopt a secular view of the origin of the universe and a secular view of the origin of man and explain human sin in terms of contemporary psychological categories and still try to smuggle Jesus in and smuggle in the cross and smuggle in the supernatural. Okay? If no creation and no fall, 
than no redemption. You can take it or leave it. That's between you and God, but don't try to piecemeal your theology together out of secular and sacred worldviews. All right. So enough said on that subject. So the whole point, the whole point of this section of Scripture is that God is sovereign over the workings of the world. Okay, that's really what I want you to see. God is sovereign over the workings of the world from start to finish. God has a plan for his world. God created you. God cares deeply for you. God is interested in the smallest details of our life because we're his precious children, right? And as we read verse 27, he longs that you would reach out and find him. He longs that we would reach out and find him. But apart from God's grace, apart from God stepping in and opening the eyes of the blind, we're lost. We need a savior. He has made a way for us to know him through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the whole point is to move God to the forefront of our lives, to take him out of our back pocket. He's not a backup plan. The point is to put him at the very center of human history. So let me ask you this as we close this morning. Is Jesus your backup plan? Is he your altar to the unknown God, the plan B for your soul? Is Jesus your insurance policy, or is he your heart's desire? And that's something we all have to wrestle with. We have to ask ourselves that question. Is Jesus just a side dish a mere garnish, or is Jesus the feast itself, the bread of life, the living water, the only thing that will truly satiate? See, I want to encourage you to bring Jesus to the forefront of your life. We do this by by being in proximity to him, making him a part of our life every single day. The Christian life is not just something you did at some point back then. It's every day. Take up your cross daily and follow Christ. The first thing we do in the morning should be to acknowledge our Lord, to thank him. The last thing we do at night, acknowledge your Lord, thank him. See, we can't live the Christian life if we keep God in our back pocket. Jesus paid far too high a price for that. Okay, We need need him every hour as we sang. Every hour, I need thee. So let's enjoy our Savior. Now, we're going to go to a time of communion. And I really want us to be thinking about about this. How do we make Jesus a real part of our life? So if you haven't picked up the communion elements yet, please do. There are some here in the front. um, Otherwise, also in the back. And I want us to be reflecting about what we've seen in this passage. And uh, can I take you to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And this is where the Apostle Paul presents the meaning of communion for the church. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We are being invited to reflect on our relationship to our Lord and Savior. Okay, what, what Paul is saying here is do not take communion in a hypocritical way. In other words, don't celebrate the death of Jesus by taking communion and then deny him in your lifestyle, deny him in your words. You end up mocking the cross when we do this. We're asked to reflect on the meaning of the cross. And when we take communion, we're encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we take communion, we're essentially saying yes to Jesus Christ. We're professing our faith publicly. So I want to invite you to do that with me. We'll begin with the bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, you have glorified your son. You've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him as we read in John 17. And this is eternal life, that they may know the true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Lord, we want to know you. We want to see Jesus. Lord, would you help us to make our faith central to our lives, to bring Jesus to the forefront, to the very center. Lord, we need your help to do that. We ask for the guidance of your spirit. We cannot do it alone. Lord, help us to live our faith and to proclaim our faith boldly in love. In Jesus' name, amen.